An insider's take now on how Mr. Trump actually won. This is how politics is waged this day. These are the meme wars in action. And the president has the most powerful platform for propaganda. Facebook has come under fire for its role in last year's election. So is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast where we break down the online race for the White House. I'm Tara McGowan, CEO and founder of Acronym, a progressive nonprofit committed to building progressive power online. In the final sprint of the 2020 presidential election, I'm bringing onto the pod some of the sharpest political strategists I know who've been working tirelessly behind the scenes to reach, persuade, and mobilize millions of voters to deliver what we hope will be a resounding and indisputable victory for Democrats up and down the ballot this November. Joining me today is Stephanie Valencia, co-founder of Equis Labs, a digital data and leadership organization committed to helping a new generation of Latinx leaders build power, and co-founder of She Se Puede, an online community for Latinas, among many other things. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the pod. Thank you, Tara. And thank you for saying the name Equis right, because nine times out of 10, people say Equis. Or somehow butchered in another way, but X is the right way to say it, just like the letter X in Spanish. Yes, I always actually think about the very first time that you said it because you said it that way. We were in a uh, conference room, I think, in California. Um, yeah. But uh, it's I, I'm so excited to catch up with you because we haven't caught up in a while because we're both obviously very busy. But one of my favorite things about talking to my women colleagues that are working in any capacity in this election cycle is that they're never doing just one thing or even just two things. And that is very true for you um, as well. So um, you're the co-founder of two organizations. You also had your own podcast. You worked in the White House under Obama. You worked for Google. Um, you've done so many things um, in the in the short time that I have known you. And so I'd love to hear, first, I'd love you to tell our audience about Equis Labs um, and also She Se Puede and, and, and catch me up because it's been a while. So how are things going? Well, I think the reason we're all juggling a lot and we're all feeling like so burned out right now is because there's just so much at stake. And I think we all knew kind of heading into this election cycle that we all had to, you know, all hands on deck, like do everything that we possibly could um, to try to uh, get Trump out of the White House. So my background, as you mentioned, is, is kind of been at this intersection of um, Latino political power building, technology, innovation, and um, and politics. And part of what but, you know, I spent the last, you know, 10, 15 years, like really working in and out of campaigns, working at the White House. I was on the 2008 Obama campaign, helping to run um, President Obama's uh, Latino vote program at the time, um, which really gave me kind of this really interesting view at the time, like our, our map was New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, and Florida. Um, and it's been interesting to see how that map has shifted over the last um, 12 years. I'm originally from New Mexico, a very small town on the U.S.-Mexico border, kind of close to Arizona, kind of sandwiched between Texas and Arizona. And my co-founder, Carlos, is a Cuban-American from Miami. And part of why we started Equis, and Equis has a couple different brands. There's Equis Research, which is our research pulling and analysis brand. We have Equis Labs, which is our C4, which um, allows us to run tests and run program. And then we have a C3, Equis Institute, 
um, where we do a lot of work with C3 partners. Um, but part of why Carlos and I stepped back and started at Keys, we, we both left the roles that we were doing, which we were very comfortable and had really good jobs, um, but decided that we couldn't stand another four years of, you know, being sideline coaches on the Latino vote and like looking and saying, what it could have, should have. Because Democrats have really had a very binary approach to how we look at Latino engagement. You're either Cuban-American in Florida, which gets usually a lot of attention, or you're everybody else. And the truth is, like, there's so much nuance, and the map has shifted and changed so much from 2008 to where we are today to now include places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. We obviously knew, know that uh, Arizona is on the precipice of, like, becoming a blue state and helping the Southwest kind of become this blue block, but we knew that wouldn't happen on its own and that there was a lot that we were getting wrong and how we were trying to understand Latino voters. So we created Equis with the notion of creating a better understanding of the Latino electorate. This election cycle, there will be 32 million eligible Latino voters, the largest minority group this election cycle. And there's always been this notion of a Latino sleeping giant. And, you know, I think it, it is in part been because um, the sleeping giant hasn't been like the alarm's not gone off with the sleeping giant. And, and, and it's because not because there's not somebody really terrible in the White House, like Donald Trump, who has had a target on this community since day one of his campaign and his presidency. But it's because campaigns traditionally historically have not engaged with Latino voters in kind of uh, a culturally competent way or, you know, because we are a younger electorate and we can talk more about this later, we're not necessarily in the universes that campaigns are targeting because we're less frequent voters, we're newer voters. Um, and so we end up kind of falling on the sidelines for campaigns and nobody really ends up talking to us. And, um, you know, we are rapidly growing. We are driving population growth in this country. It's U.S. born Latinos driving population growth in this country today. It's not waves of immigration um, coming and foreign born populations driving immigration or uh, population growth. So like this is something that Democrats and progressives are going to have to contend with for a very long time. That being said, one of the most powerful things that we have found in the last year in our research over close to 40,000 interviews in 11 different battleground states is the gender gap that exists in the Latino community. And while there's a gender gap that exists across all racial groups, the, the Latino gender gap is particularly stark and has been particularly wide given kind of the historic precedent. And there have been points at this election cycle that, uh, that have, where Latinas are deeply, deeply anti-Trump and men, you know, can kind of waffle in the middle. Men are the ones that are kind of been moving a little bit more than Latinas because they're so deep in their anti-Trumpness. Um, where the, the gap between men and women has been historic, upwards of 16 points, where previously we saw between 20, 10 and 12 points, we've seen 16, 18 points in different places and nationally on average. And so, um, you know, this gender gap, it, it really leaves a lot for us to think about, well, how do we engage Latinas? What do we also do about Latino men, which we can, is a whole topic of conversation we can dig into later, um, because it's something, again, that I think we're going to have to contend with longer term. But what do we do with Latinas who are deeply, deeply engaged, deeply anti-Trump, but don't have historically not turned out at the same levels as Black, non-Hispanic, Black, and white women? 
And, and we've identified a number of different reasons through different partner research we've, we've looked into. And one of that is what we call the confidence gap. And it's these women who feel like the, the process of voting is too complicated. It's too hard. They feel like they need um, more education or that they don't have the resources they need to actually vote. And our message to them is you don't need a PhD in political science to vote. You have all you need with the ex personal experience that you have, you know, the experience of your family and what you experience day to day, but you do not need an advanced degree um, to participate. And they just don't want to mess up. So they think it's too hard that they don't have the education they need. And so therefore, they are not going to participate because they don't want to mess up. And so that is something that we have been working to overcome, which is why I helped to found She Se Puede, which is an online digital platform, a lifestyle brand that is focused at reaching younger Latino women, which again is a, the, the largest part of the electorate, Latino electorate, in several key battleground states. Um, along with America Ferrera and Eva Longoria and a number of other kind of cultural Hollywood um, creatives and a bunch of other political creatives like Jess Morales Riquetto, Monica Ramirez, um, and others, um, Carmen Perez, who is founded one of the founders of the Women's March. You know, we started it because we knew that you know, starting with politics with these Latinas was not the answer. We had to start with things that really matter to them. Um, because if we started with politics, we'd be preaching to the choir. The people who always get attracted to the political flame would come and, uh, you know, come to a brand that was focused on Latinas and politics. So we made the very um, critical decision that, like, we were going to be a lifestyle brand that was going to focus on things on the whole Latina lifestyle, which is makeup and beauty, cooking, family, education, financial security, and civic participation. So we like to say we like to give people ice cream with their broccoli. And so, <laughs> you know, we are in the midst of today actually kicking off a quote unquote roadshow um, through Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida, where we're doing local engagement, um, mostly virtual, um, in some cases, in some in person, um, local engagement with Latinas on the ground who have become part of our She Sip With a squad, who have raised their hands and say, like, I want to do more in my community. Um, so we've got a great, like, Instagram feed. There's lots of really fun Latina influencers who are, you know, DJs and yoga instructors and Pilates instructors who are doing free classes and giving their bits of wisdom. But at the same time, we're feeding a steady diet around political participation and um, and how you vote. And, and again, trying to change this culture of confidence and, and encouraging these women, these younger Latinas, especially to say, you have all you need. Voting is hard. There are people out there who are actively trying to make sure that you do not vote, but like it is absolutely worth it. So like do what it takes um, to get it done. And we're trying to give them the resources to do it. That's amazing. And it's uh, you guys pulled that together so quickly. And I've seen some of the content. It's incredible. And I want to touch on um, this confidence deficit that you mentioned. It's something that I hear about for all women, truly across all demographics, all races, all ages is it. And we know it from all industries, right? The, yeah, the, we all the yeah, we feeling, can all relate we, to it. Yes, we don't. We don't know enough. We you know, we don't have this degree. We don't have that degree. We're not the most studied person on this. And so many I've always loved that quote of like just, you know, approach everything with the confidence of a mediocre white man because no one knows everything. It really is about confidence and confidence builds more confidence. And so I, I love this. And I think the other piece that's really important I want to touch on is, is the messenger side. You mentioned a, a big reason you started Equis Labs was that you and Carlos didn't want to be on the sidelines anymore. And, you know, I've, I've worked in democratic politics for about a decade now. And, and so much of it comes down to, I mean, messenger matters oftentimes more than message. It's something that I think gets for 
not forgotten, but pushed aside because the messengers or the people developing the messages in politics tend to all look more or less the same. They are majority white. They are majority of men. Still, I think that we're making a lot of inroads in democratic politics here, but it's so important. It's so critical for, for anything to be effective, to be run by people from the community that they're reaching. And that doesn't actually happen very often. And it means that you're not creating authentic communications. You're not creating culturally competent communications. And I think that that's so important. And the thing that I love most about the mission behind Eki's Labs is that you're not just trying to provide the, the research and the resources and the assets to communicate to Latinx or Hispanic voters more um, genuinely. You're trying to develop more Latinx leaders and strategists so they can do that work because that's the problem. There's a deficit of Latino and, and Latina strategists, frankly. And, and so we have to build that bench at every level. And so I'm so, so grateful for the work you're doing in that and, and that you're, you're doing it in so many different spaces and ways. So thank you for that. And I think similar to, to acronym, both of us are trying to build infrastructure that hasn't existed. Ours is of course more tactical, focused on digital strategy, regardless of audience, et cetera, and tactics. But it's hard because you really are trying to create a new space that hasn't existed to fill that gap. So it is also hard because I know you and I are similar in the way where it's like every problem we find, we want to solve it <laughs> because we have the will to do it or the network. Yeah. Um, so how, you know, especially in this election and how high the stakes are and what a huge role um, Latinx voters will play in deciding critical states like Florida and Arizona um, and, and New Mexico and Nevada, how have you personally focused your energy and the energy of the organizations that you're you're a part of, given that this audience is not monolithic by any means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of, um, I want to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned. One is the leadership bench, because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, part of our challenge has been in the places where we see resources and strategy, you know, um, moving um, in the democratic and progressive ecosystem, we want to make sure that people are at those tables who know and understand and are from the Latino community and know and understand these new tools and approaches and the research and the nuance. And they're representing that at these tables where there is a lot of um, spend that is happening. Um, so that's partly why we're investing in a leadership bench um, and why we're not just doing testing for the sake of testing. And, you know, a couple of things I would say, a lot of the tools um, that and, and the gap that we were trying to fill, fill at Equis was one, how do we, uh, and our primary customers are not voters. You know, our primary customers are practitioners. Like, so my job is to make sure that X organization, like Mi Familia Vota, who's running a multi-state, multi-million dollar program um, to reach Latino voters, that they have the research that we've done, that they have the digital testing findings that we've done so that they can implement that into their program, communicating with um, Latino and voters. And so they don't have to reinvent the wheel they on their own. They don't have to so reinvent the wheel on their learnings. own. And the thing that we discovered, like these uh, platforms were not built with Latinos in mind. So like every vendor that we talked to, when we wanted to go try to identify like what worked with Spanish language dominant voters in Florida, not to mention an even smaller subgroup of Puerto Rican voters in Florida. Like the current testing platforms, almost impossible to try to go and actually find that subgroup of Latino voter. So like these bigger, broader tools that work for the broader electorate, like do not necessarily, we're not built with Latinos in mind and create major issues for us in terms of how we actually want to test across different subgroups, because there are some really important distinctions beyond gender 
around country of origin, around um, language dominance, around generational, generational differences, things like that that are really important for us to be able to try to test that we have not really been able to dig into because the technological platforms aren't kind of built for us to kind of get to that level of detail or subgroup that we really want. So that is something that we ran into. And it into. comes down to the data sets, right? It comes down that, to the data that sets. That are also available. It comes down to the data sets that are available and kind of how we subsegment or how those data sets subsegment different parts of the population. Um, so I think that's like a very critical like thing that a gap that we didn't anticipate, but that we like ran into very early on and has been very inhibiting to kind of our work to do it at the scale that we want, I think, and to get the depth that we really want. Um, so I think that is something we're going to continue to try to tackle, like moving forward. But fundamentally, you start at two steps forward. Yeah, like, I'm going to create the ability yeah. to test. Then you realize, oh no, no, we need to go four we, steps back, back to create yeah, the infrastructure exactly. to get there. Exactly. And so fundamentally, like I think, you know, for us, what our goal is at Equis is to make sure we are driving smarter, better, more efficient program reaching Latino voters, and that we are inspiring more spending because we are being smarter about how we are investing. So like, that is the gap we were trying to fill. And there are places where, um, you know, the map for, for to 270 really runs through the heart of Latino community because Latinos are everywhere now. And again, we talked about the Southwest in places like New Mexico and Colorado that have like slowly turned blue over time, Arizona that's on the precipice. You have Nevada that's like kind of always teetering, which really continues to still worry me about being our Michigan of 2020. And then we have Florida, which is a whole other conversation. But then again, you have places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and even Georgia, where there is a very small but rapidly growing population. It has been growing over the last 20 years. You've had you know, um, immigrants come to these parts of the country to work in the meatpacking plants, to come and work in like the agricultural industry and other parts of the in and in other industries in, in, in these air in these states. Um, but they have started to have children or they had children their children are finally of age to vote and they're like in their you know 18 19 early 20s um this might be their first election that they're voting in they're really young they're really progressive so some of like the most progressive numbers we've seen in our data have been in wisconsin and north carolina which is kind of shocking because like those for the traditional map they're like trying to trend more moderate and so the the kind of point we've made is there's like super high return on investment in states like that because the Latino community, especially Latino women, are deeply, deeply anti-Trump. But they have to be pro-Biden and they have we have to increase their motivation so that they actually go vote for Joe Biden, that they're not just anti-Trump voters, but that they become pro-Biden voters too. Absolutely. And with all of these younger voters you're talking about, voting is a habit-forming behavior. So getting them to vote for the first time when they're between 18 and 21 or 22 means that these turn into long-term voters. And I also, I think about that all the time because we, we spend a lot of time focusing on expanding the electorate too online with younger people. But part of the reason that we don't even know or that, you know, the national pundits or pollsters don't acknowledge um, Latina and Latino voters in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, is because they're not the biggest block of likely voters, or they're not the most significant exactly. block of likely voters. And it's this chicken egg problem. They won't be unless you invest in them. You invest in exactly. reaching them. And this in, gets yeah. back exactly to the, the point around targeting on campaigns, which is, you know, campaigns have limited resources. 
So they obviously have to target. So they target based on who they assume are going to be likely voters and who are the of the likely voters who are the most supportive of their candidate. And so like of those voters, those are the people you want to turn out. And everybody else is kind of a gamble. And what we say is that like Latino voters actually aren't that much of a gamble, but like they do not fall into the likely voter category. And so we call, we, we often say like they're sitting there on the sidelines ready to be engaged, but there nobody is talking to to them. Right. And you just need to reach out to them. I just need to reach out to them authentically. And then this gets to my last point about content, which is, you know, a lot of what you've seen on presidential campaigns or other third party groups who do uh, content creation is you see just like a, a carbon copy Spanish language tra Google translate of an ad, sometimes not well translated at all. Um, you know, and on a good day, you will get a good carbon copy of a Spanish language ad. But part of like what our um, Spanish and English like are not um, mirror languages like they're not even like from the same root so like there's a lot of sentiment that gets lost when you like carbon copy something from English to Spanish and you lose a lot of like the emotion and, and again like the sentiment um, between the two and so fundamentally like what we tell campaigns is that you need to like think and ideate an ad targeting Hispanic voters in Spanish in Spanish, like you need to think about like, what is the message you're trying to communicate? That's the same English message, but like ideate it and create it in Spanish that, and you will end up with a fundamentally different ad with different words, but the same sentiment. Right. And if you don't do that, it's not that you just haven't created a good ad or an effective ad. You could do harm because if, if somebody reaches me in an ad that's in my language, but not at all in my language, it's evident. And then you feel pandered to. And I think pandering is that is the risk and that 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 so many campaigns or organizations that don't invest in culturally competent and relevant strategists and consultants and communications um, they run the risk of. So I'm I couldn't agree more on that point. And so something else I, I we obviously talk a lot on this podcast about the internet and social media and the role of that in uh, in this and all elections. And um, with Latinx voters, though, again, they are not monolithic, but they tend to, in a lot of reports, over-index on social media, spend more time consuming content, sharing content, communicating with their friends and family members on WhatsApp or other uh, messaging apps. And so really, the internet and social media and mobile is where you can reach a lot of these voters. Um, it's not traditional modes of communication, which I know that's why digital is even a part of your mission statement at Equis, which makes me my heart swell. So I I want to hear a little bit about that. What have been some of the most powerful platforms or spaces to reach some of these critical voters in these states um, from, from the work you guys have done? Yeah, I would say two. I mean, digital has been core to, core to our mission, one, to understand who, how, and like where we like, you know, who are the people that are like disproportionately online? What platforms are they on? And who are they listening to? And like, what are like, what, what are they doing? when they're online. And so there have been a couple key major findings we've we've done. I think one on the on the platforms like YouTube, a hundred percent, hands down, was like a place where I think people are watching a lot of lots a lot of music videos or that's where they're that where they're doing music. They're not it's either there or Pandora. You know, Pandora is like a really interesting case study because a lot of Latinos use Pandora. And the other like major platform is WhatsApp. The kind of stuff that gets spread on WhatsApp is kind of unbelievable. And this is like where the internet can be like a double-edged sword because 
WhatsApp has become, you know, as we've seen in other elections playing out, like WhatsApp has become a playground for like disinformation and for virally like spreading disinformation. And it can be both a good and a bad thing. And we've tried to do a lot of work to figure out how do we use WhatsApp for political organizing? How do we use WhatsApp for good and make sure that we are thinking about you know, using um, using it to help organizers organize themselves because oftentimes organizers don't think about it as an organizing tool. But you can go organize a hundred of your community member and volunteers on WhatsApp, distribute memes that they can then forward on into the groups that they're a part of, um, and create like fun WhatsApp content that's very shareable. That is good news and good information and real news and facts about about the uh, election. So like those are like the platforms where I think that there's a lot of interesting um, kind of exploration to continue to do. And then we look at like the what are we communicating to people? And we've done a lot of digital testing around like message, messenger, and tone. Um, some of the one of the kind of just top line findings that we we discovered was that you know we had this young male actor, we had a young female actor, an older abuelita, and like an older um, kind of man. And it turned out the young male was actually the best messenger to you know people uh, to older Latina women. And the older Latino messenger was actually the best messenger to the younger Latino man. So it was like his grandmother or his mom was his best messenger, which goes back to like the power that Latinos hold in our families and our communities. And he was actually the better messenger to his mother. So I thought that was like a very interesting kind of paradigm um, when we looked at like- It is, it's very familial. Yeah, very familial, right? And so that's the kind of work we've been doing to kind of identify where people are. The internet is like critically, critically important to Latinos. We'll continue to over-index on mobile specifically. Um, and again, gaming is also a huge platform for young Latino men. Um, I, I saw a crazy statistic, like it was like 60 plus percent, I think also of young younger Latino men are regular gamers. I do want to go back to something you mentioned because you, you've, you've said it twice now and I it's such an important thing is that we need to make the internet and social media a place for good again and for sharing good stories because it is these are also the spaces on social media and messaging apps like WhatsApp where nefarious actors are um, spreading disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories. And it's so much harder. This is a topic I'm really concerned and passionate about because a lot of the attention in the political press at the national level on misinformation and disinformation is put on political advertising only, which of course that that is a, a space that uh, can and should be regulated more. But in fact, the majority of misinformation and disinformation spreads organically, peer to peer, friend to friend in these messaging apps or on these these group chats or threads or or on social media without money behind it. And um, I have read some reports. I know there was an article in Politico a number of months ago about how this was impacting Latinx communities in Florida um, through WhatsApp and beyond just organic disinformation that spread. Um, President Trump has made a very concerted effort to reach out to Latina and Latino voters, um, especially in Florida um, and different states. And, and we've been tracking that for over a year now um, through through for what it's worth our newsletter. Um, and, you know, with Spanish language, with with different, you know, very, very specific messages related to Venezuela, to Venezuelan Americans and others. And so he is making clearly a real play for for the Latinx vote in some of these states. And I'm curious 
various, you know, um, both from the, the disinformation that spreads and Trump's very um, public efforts to engage this community. How have you seen different um, Latina and Latino voters respond? And is there a difference also, yeah. as you mentioned before, in terms of gender or age? Yeah. Totally. Um, so my theory has always been Trump's strategy. You know, he's doubled down in the places where he, where Republicans have traditionally done well, which is Cuban American voters. Um, in 2016, I think you saw in Florida, there wasn't like a huge, uh, like he hadn't quite maximized his support in 2016. I think they were kind of like, who is this guy? Like, um, but at the end of the day, over the last four years, what you've seen is Cuban Americans largely kind of coming home to the Republican Party. You've seen uh, an investment of um, in the news and, and conservative ecosystem in Florida to, um, you know, be an echo chamber of socialism. Democrats are socialists. Joe Biden is socialist. You know, everything you know, that entire message. And that has really has broken through. Like we've seen it in our polling. We've seen where the numbers have shifted over time. Like that fundamentally is, um, has worked, has been a strategy that has worked with them. And can and I ask basically you a question? Is that, yeah. Does that strategy work more so with older um, Latino and Latino voters? No. Or do you see it across the board? We see it across the board. Um, in fact, even um, um, among some younger Cuban American voters, which is partly what is is, is so troubling. So I think, um, you know, that he they the conservative right has invested in an influencer named Alex Otayola, um, who is a Cuban American. He's probably in his late twenties, early thirties. You know, came I think in the last like fifteen years from Cuba. Um, said he voted for Hillary in twenty sixteen. Like has become like a complete like mega. Um, you know, uh, evangelizer over the last four years has a YouTube channel, gets tens of thousands of views the day after he posts his videos. Like he just met with Trump a couple of days ago. Like, so that is their like, and, and that gets fed into like the WhatsApp groups and gets fed into the local conservative radio. And so you've got this like cycle and like echo chamber that they built in South Florida. My concern is that they build that in a place like Arizona in 2021, or they build it in a place like North Carolina or other places where um, I, I really think Arizona will be the place that they do it next. But I think, um, you know, related to that, I think Trump's strategy has been just about shaving the margins and like getting enough Latinos to either vote for him or just not vote for Joe Biden. Because a vote not a Latino not voting and showing up and not voting for Joe Biden is a net vote for Trump. We, we cannot forget that. Like if you do not show up, you are actually voting for Trump. Um, because you that's right. It's him. very similar to their deterrent strategy that exactly. was that was revealed in terms of black voter outreach in 16, which we exactly. know they do. they're doing again. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's about suppression, it's about creating doubt. It is about um what we call both sidesism, which is like, well, Trump sucks, we know that, but like Joe Biden's not great either. So I'm just not going to vote. So like you end up in this series of both sides of them. But when it comes to men, um, you know, the one place where we have seen them kind of waffle a bit is on the economy. Um, there is an illness that I have termed Trump intrigue among Latino men, which is, you know, they are intrigued by him and um, the economy. They think he's a good businessman. They think he's handled the economy well. They think he's like a pick him up by your bootstraps, live the American dream. Whether or not that is actually true, we know the truth about like Trump and his taxes and like whether or not he's self-made. Um, but they see it that way. And that is who they want to be. Then there's also the like thread of potential like machismo and relating to the machismo. And more than the machismo, I think it's actually just the cult of personality, which is like, 
he doesn't take shit from people. And I think you have, you know, a set of Hispanic men who like are often invisible or often not seen. And like, they just want to say like F you sometimes. And Trump does that. But the reality is while they are intrigued by him and they quote unquote might support him or give him a higher favorability because they appreciate those things about him. They, that's not translating into votes. So like in Arizona, for example, among younger Hispanic men in our last poll, 38% had like a, a high favorability and support of Trump. Of that 38%, only 25% said that they would actually vote for him. So like you, again, you've got this like Trump intrigue that people are fascinated, these young men and older men are fascinated by him and are wavering as to whether or not they're actually going to to vote for Joe Biden or just stay home. And I think the likelihood of them just staying home is fairly high, unless they're very deeply anti-Trump Latino wives and mothers drag them out the door and say they have to vote for Joe Biden. Right. And well, and they are, they're persuasion voters then. These are persuadable voters because, and, and it means that the only candidate who is doing outreach has the, has the opportunity to sway them their way. And if they're not being reached by the other side, there's no counter narrative or alternative necessarily, especially if all they're being reached with is negative. But that's such an important point you just made though, but it really is the people in their communities, in their families who are, you know, adamantly know who they're voting for, know that they are anti-Trump, et cetera, that can make the difference there and engaging them so important. So I do, I, I have to ask you the last topic I wanted to raise with you. So at Eki's Labs, you guys recently um, did a poll on uh, Latino trust and engagement in the battleground states um, around voting. And so this is the thing that's stealing me of my sleep right now, um, just days out from the election really, is, is making sure that this is a free and fair election, given the unprecedented nature of it in a pandemic with the unbelievable record-breaking turnout already in terms of registration and early vote across so many of these states. But talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing specifically among Latino voters when it comes to trust in this election and and how they're planning to vote for the ones who are. Yeah. So um, the challenge I think that we have seen is that, um, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about kind of the election and, and Trump's messaging around the election. Um, I think we will have work to do to ensure that whether you're a voter who voted for Trump or a voter who voted for Biden, that regardless of what the election outcome is, that we accept the results of whatever that is. Um, there is certainly question and skepticism around kind of the process and like um, Trump's willingness to um, concede. Um, so there's skepticism there. I will say for the people we've seen, you know, fair, fairly high numbers of Latinos who have have requested vote by mail and who are voting early um, and voting by mail. Um, uh, for those who aren't, um, you know, there is fear about voting in person. And I think this is something as, a, as messengers and as practitioners, we need to think about how we communicate, which is because um, we need to ensure that, and kind of going back to the original, one of the original messages I talked about, which is voting is hard. Like this year, especially will be particularly hard, not just in an ordinary year where people, you know, many people don't want us to vote, but you, if you want to vote by mail and your state doesn't have something that where they're automatically sending you a ballot, you have to go and request it. And if you don't request it in time or you don't get it in time, then you can vote early. And if you don't vote early, you can vote in person. But 
even just instilling in people that there will be safeguards in place when you vote in person, like that social distancing will be enforced, that um, election machines will be clean, that like election workers will, um, the way that I've been kind of talking about it is like it's, it's, it feels, it should feel no different than going to the grocery store. Like you will take the same precautions, you will wear gloves, you will take hand sanitizer, take your phone charger, take comfortable shoes, like all of those things and be prepared to wait. But like this year in particular, voting will be very hard and we have to accept that. And if you know that going in, just be prepared for it. But it is absolutely worth it and is especially worth it this year to vote. But there are serious obstacles we're going to have to overcome to get that last tranche of people out the door to vote in person on election day for whatever reason they were not able to request a ballot or to go early. Um, but the, the message is really going to have to be one about voting safely and that there are safeguards in place and that it shouldn't feel scary to do so any scarier than going to the grocery store. Again, confidence building so important. And I am going to end on a positive note. What gives you hope right now? I've asked you what keeps you up at night. What is giving you what's your source of hope right now that the election is in 14 days? (laughs) That is what's giving me hope that I can see an end in sight. Um, It has been a long four years. It's just been a long four years. And the the fact that there's an end in sight, even though like chances are there will be no clear end on election day, at least we'll move to a different phase. Like at least there will be a different phase of of what is happening. There will be some some conclusion that we will work and organize from that is different from what we are doing now, which is just feels like a swirl of uncertainty. So that right now is, is about all that is keeping my, my flame lit. There is a light at the end. We don't know what it looks like, but we've done, you have, you certainly have done so, so much to make sure that those results are what we need them to be. So thank you so much for all of your work, Stephanie, um, and all of your So great to catch up. So great to catch up. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. That's all we have for this week. If you want to take a deeper dive into the state of digital politics, and if you're not already a subscriber to our weekly newsletter, also called For What It's Worth, you can sign up at anotheracronym.org forward slash FWIW.